0: Ecclesiastes 5:8 through 20. If you see the poor oppressed in a district, injustice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all, and the king himself profits from the fields. Whoever loves money never has enough, whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income this too is meaningless as goods increase so do those who consume them and what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them the sleep of a laborer is sweet whether they eat little or much but as for the rich their abundance permits them no sleep i have seen a grievous evil under the sun wealth hoarded to harm to the harm of its owners or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. Mm. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This, too, is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. This is what I have ob- observed to be good, that it is inappropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. Mm-hmm. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Kevin.
1: All right, let me pray for us as we dive into this. Lord, uh, give us grace to receive what you have for us uh, this morning, um, as we talk about money and uh, a topic that touches all of our lives. Uh, I pray, yield our hearts, uh, Lord. Give us uh, eyes to see and ears to hear what you have for us, Lord. Um, we all have so much to learn. I know I do. Uh, be gentle with us, uh, but also discipline us in the ways that you want to. And we ask this in your name. Amen. All right. Last week, Randy was here uh, preaching out of Ecclesiastes 11 uh, about uh, really the idea of investing yourself openly and freely. Um, you know, the, the passage about cast your bread on the waters and, and invest yourself in a lot of different ways because you just don't know. You don't know whether this or that uh, will kind of work out the way that it will. And he really argued, a, uh, argued from the Bible to us that the gospel really frees us in wisdom to invest ourselves very differently than how the world operates and how the world invests itself. Uh, because investing like that, it always invites fear, right? Fear of the outcomes. He talked a lot about fear of the future or... or and a lot of times we can become future tellers. We try to become future tellers or future controllers. And the gospel and wisdom invites us to say, hey, I can, I can lead that life of fear of being a future teller or a future controller. And I can step into a life of faith that I understand, like Matthew 6 says, that God, I don't have to worry about my future because God knows my future. He knows every day ordained for me before one of them came to be. And I'm more valuable than the birds, and he feeds the birds the air. So I can step away from fear and into faith. That's possible because of the gospel. That's possible because of wisdom. And so one of those aspects of investment uh, that Ecclesiastes gets at and what we talked about last week and what we just read today is my relationship with how I view my money. Okay? How am I to think about my money? What is wisdom with regards to money? How does the Lord... Call me to use the money that he's entrusted me with. Even when I say a sentence like that, that should cause all of us to go, whoa. Is my money my money? Or is my money the Lord's money? You know, the Bible has answers to those questions. It speaks very directly to this topic. A lot of us, uh, you know, everybody just take a deep breath. I know a lot of us, it's easy to pucker when we talk about this topic because there's been a lot of abuse with this topic. There's been a lot of guilt surrounding this topic, a lot of shame, a lot of leveraging people. None of that's going to happen this morning, but we are really going to talk about what's the heart behind all of this. How does the Lord call me with wisdom to use the money that I've been entrusted with? And really, I want you to to wrestle with this question this morning, and it's this. Do I have money or does money have me? Do I have money or does money have me? Is it occupying me, or do I have it? Because the Bible talks about it a lot, not just in the wisdom literature. It talks about it a lot in the wisdom literature. But Jesus talks about money more than any single topic that he talks about in the entire Bible. Like, that's, that's astounding. Part of me even wondered, I wonder if that's why I don't want to study the Bible so much, because I know I'm going to bump into this, right? of Luke's gospel, when Jesus is teaching, he's teaching and talking about our relationship to money. It's astoundingly more than any other topic that he talks about in Scripture. And a lot of theologians, and I would agree with them, especially after my own personal journey into this topic this week, because uh, I stand before you a man convicted about my own relationship to money. Uh, This was a hard and good week that really broke my heart and made me realize, man, Dave, I have a lot to learn about how I'm supposed to be navigating in this area of my life. But a lot of theologians, and I would agree with them now, (laughs) would argue that there's no greater point of assessment for the spiritual transformation of a person, for the maturity, the spiritual maturity of a person, than how they handle money. Like, if you study the early church in Acts... Acts 4 Acts, Acts four to 6, if you go look at those passages sometime, maybe later today, one of the astounding things, maybe the single greatest astounding thing to the Roman world that the Christians were breaking into was is that how they used and how they devoted themselves to their use of money, to their generosity, to their care for those in need. They literally gained a different name as a people, they didn't call them Christians back then, they called them the way. And it was was literally shocking the Roman world because they were leveraging their resources in such a a radically other-centered way, it left the world literally jaw-dropped. they had never seen anything like it before. So what does this passage help us see with regards to our relationship with money? because scripture says the love of money and we talks talks about that in here whoever loves money never has money enough the love of money is the root first timothy 6 says of all sorts of evil it's like the gateway drug <laughs> of all sorts of other problems that if i don't really answer this question about my relationship to money and especially in the area of denying myself as it regards to my money. If I never deny myself, if I never check my heart in this area, it'll be very easy for me to not check my heart in many other areas of my life. And y'all, we've grown up in a world that basically says, your money is yours, and it's there for your pleasure and your use, and it is largely unchecked in our culture. So we're um, we're about to get checked, okay? Or as Doc Holliday said, uh, cover your ears, darling. Uh, (laughs) If you don't want to get checked, you better cover your ears. So three things. Money's power and grip. Okay? I'm going to talk about that. What's the difference between an occupied heart? Because he says there at the end, God occupies him with gladness of heart or an idolatrous heart. So money's power and grip. Wisdom's power in breaking money's grip. And then we're going to talk about, if we get to it, this occupied and therefore a generous heart, okay? So money's power and grip, wisdom's power in breaking money's grip, and then an occupied and generous heart. Okay, money's power or money's grip. I have to say this before we kind of launch into this, that first off, uh, you could never argue this from Scripture. Money isn't bad. Wealth isn't bad. Even at the very end of the passage, right? Right? He says, when God gives someone wealth and possession, so God gives that sometimes. It's not bad to have money. It's not bad to have wealth. You can never argue that from Scripture. In fact, you could argue the opposite, that money and wealth are good things, but they oftentimes get out of balance in our lives. It's like when we talked about anger. Anger isn't a bad thing, but it can go bad in us. Our relationship with money can go bad quick. It's like uh, you've seen people who have, like, pet tigers, Right? Some of you are shaking your head in self-righteousness right now. A tiger is awesome, right? It's a powerful creature. It's a beautiful creature. But tigers have their place, right? They're supposed to be out in the wild or in like a, a zoo of sorts, you know, something maintained and careful. But they're not supposed to be a pet. It's the same thing with money. Money is a beautiful thing. It's a powerful thing. It's a great thing. But it's supposed to be in a certain place in our life. And oftentimes, we're living with the pet tiger and we don't even know it, and it's going to eat our lunch. Because just like anything in our life, and money's one of the chief things that we can do this with in our life, it can become an idol. And an idol, remember, we've defined this a million times, an idol is not a bad thing. An idol is a good thing that's gone beyond its God-intended place in our life. It's something that's really good that's gone too far. And so, therefore, an idol isn't something that we have. It's something that actually has us something that controls us, something that possesses us. And this passage highlights some of, it's not everything, but some of the external and kind of internal contours or fruits, litmus tests that we can take to know does money have a place in our lives that maybe it shouldn't, okay? So let's look at these. um, This is money's power, money's grip. Let's look at some of these external contours, the fruit and the litmus that we we can see here. This section opens up If you see the poor oppressed in the district and justice and rights denied, don't be surprised at such things. One official's eyeing a higher one. They're both kind of eyeing each other still. The increase from the land is taken by all the king profits from all the fields. It opens with what sounds kind of like a random and even somewhat disconnected scenario, doesn't it? Like just at a face value read, it seems like he's kind of talking about a justice issue and and, uh, political power and all this sort of stuff, and then he goes directly into money seems to be kind of a random scenario about the poor in a district being denied their justice and rights and the system of those in charge that are the higher ups uh, in this cycle of using their positions to advance themselves and those in the same class above them it's kind of painting a picture of what uh, we would call the good old boys club you know culturally kind of you scratch my back I scratch your back and he's describing not just kind of an imaginary scenario, he's describing a real, like a real life scenario that he's probably in. The, the author of Ecclesiastes was somebody who had incredible wealth, okay? So he's not, he's not, he's not the poor person kind of taking a cheap shot at the rich guy. He's, he's doing something very self-examinatory and reflective here, because he's one of these higher-ups. He's a part of the good old boys club. He's describing a real-life scenario, and it would be really easy, depending on how you see yourself, to kind of focus on those people, whoever those people are who are higher up. But he's using this to really get at a root issue, an external fruit of a root issue, and that's this. That their money and their position of wealth is expressing itself in a fundamental heart posture, and it's this that when it comes to my money and when it comes to my wealth, I'm the priority. I'm the priority. And it's manifesting itself in injustice and the poor and their rights being denied. But money and wealth have this inordinate power, this inordinate way to focus me on me, on myself, on my advancement, on my needs. On my wants. And this scenario that he's reflecting on here, where one official is kind of eyeing the other, you can kind of imagine yourself into it, right? Got people above you, got people below you, you're thinking about how to climb the ladder, right? Do you see that in this scenario he's painting a picture where he's saying all the focus is on me? It's on self and on keeping those above you, or at least those around you, <laughs> at your same status, at your same level, keeping those people paid and comfortable so you get paid. There's no focus on those who can offer you nothing in return. The poor, those whose rights are being denied. Only on those who can offer you something. That's what he's saying in those two verses. That's how money is being handled with these positions of higher up. We call it the return on investment, right? My ROI. Is the ROI, how am I going to get back from what I'm investing? Is that what's actually the ruler and directing me and how I, how I relate to my money or the gospel? Jesus teaches a very similar parable. If you want to go study something, it's not that well, there's a parable attached to a teaching where he's confronting a Pharisee in Luke 14 where they're throwing these banquets, and it's a patronage culture there. It's very similar to what he's talking about, where they throw these banquets, and they invite all the people that they want to do business with, and you basically throw this giant party, and it's very expensive to throw this party, but you know that you're going to get paid back by throwing this party, because all of these people are going to give you the contracts, and they're going to give you the business. And Jesus says to the Pharisee, don't do it. He says, I want you to invite the poor and the oppressed. I want you to invite people into the banquet that you're preparing that can give you nothing in return. And then you will have reward and riches and righteousness as a result. The first thing the author of Ecclesiastes does is he says, here, let me give you a little red flag. Let me show you externally how this can work itself out. Where the poor are oppressed and justice and rights denied. Because the higher-ups are keeping themselves in a good, comfortable spot. Yeesh. All right. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. One of the first evils he points out here is justice and rights denied for others in need. Well, the external, we know something that's true. Scripture says this in Proverbs 4. says, guard your heart because everything you do flows from it. So whatever's going on externally that he's talking about, it actually comes from an internal place, right? That it comes from a heart posture. So let's look at some of the internal contours deep in the heart that may expose the fact that, man, I may have a love affair with money. Second section, 10, 11, and 12, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what are the benefit to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of the laborer is sweet, whether they have little or much, but as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. So he's talked about an external situation. Now, what does he do is he kind of cracks open his heart. <laughs> Here. He says, Let me tell you what it looks like on the inside. Deep in the heart. When I don't have money, but money has me when it occupies my heart. One of the great interior litmus tests, the wisdom literature is saying to us is this, I never have enough of it. That I'm never satisfied with the amount of money I have. That I'm always feasting my eyes on the things that I have, or in our culture, Posting the things that I have so that people can feast their eyes on them. That I'm always climbing, that there's no rest. The sleep of the laborer is sweet, but as the rich, their abundance permits them no rest. There's no rest. There's only anxiety. There's only worry. And he even goes on to warn them. He says, I've seen a grievous evil under the sun. Wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners or wealth lost through some misfortune. He's even saying that you can hoard, which is different than saving. I mean, we could talk about a whole sermon on saving. Saving is a biblical thing. It's a celebrated thing. It's commended in Scripture to be wise and shrewd and save. That's different than hoarding. Saving and hoarding aren't the same thing, and I'll let the Lord do business with you, whether you're a saver or a hoarder, okay? Hoarding is something the Bible doesn't commend because he says it does harm to you. It's bad for you that in in gathering and hoarding in that way, you're actually doing harm to yourself and you're blind to that reality, right? Have you ever seen that show, Hoarders? Or have you ever been around somebody who struggled with hoarding? What does hoarding do? Hoarding actually crowds out the space for the things in our lives that have value, right? It crowds out the space for the things in life that actually do have value. Other things in our life suffer when we hoard. I've seen, I've, I've, seen, I've been in the home of a hoarder before. Their health suffered. Their physical health, not just uh, um, anxiety and psychological, but their physical health suffered as a, as a result of it. Their relationships, hoarders are notoriously, isolated and alone, and all of their time is dedicated to the protection of these things. Hoarders are oftentimes the loneliest, just like wealthy people many times can be the loneliest people on earth. Matthew 6 says that you cannot love both God and money. What does God love? God doesn't love money. He doesn't need money. What God loves is he loves from his place of wealth and riches. He loves people. And so as a result, I can't love money and love people because I can't love what God loves and love who he loves in the same way. So hoarding oftentimes makes us really relationally unwealthy. Good picture of this, where it's never enough. I'm never satisfied. It has my focus. There's no rest. There's no anxiety. There's always worry. I'm hoarding. Uh, Think of Gollum from Lord of the Rings, right? It's a fantastic picture. You know, my precious, right? The ring that over time, because of his closeness to the ring, he he became something else, right? He became subhuman. He became a monster and was completely blind to the reality. He didn't even see it. Sin, the flesh, the enemy, or what the wisdom literature would call folly, takes what is good, which is money. Money is good. (laughs) And, And what is intended for us to be generous with. And it makes us greedy. It makes us focus on more. More for me, and spending an inordinate amount of time focusing on myself. I'm the priority. When other wisdom literature says to us this, this is how I want your heart towards this, honor the Lord with your wealth. It doesn't mean to be not wealthy. Honor him with it. With the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to the overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. What is he saying there? We could stop and give a whole sermon on, is the Old Testament tithe, you know, what we should be observing right now? Go read in Luke 11 that Jesus not only affirms the tithe, but he says that's, not, that's a baseline, not a goal. But the, the point of first fruits is this. First, right? Priority. It means that that grip that money has on our lives that makes us the priority, he says, I want to flip that. It's flipped. I want your first fruits. I want you to honor me with the wealth that I've given you. And when you think of money and how you're called to live with it, your desires, my desires, my concerns, my needs, those aren't first in line. Rather what he wants. He's first. This is hard, right? I mean, golly, if you have ears in your head right now, y'all probably want to punch me. This is so countercultural. There's nothing in our world that's telling us to to live with our money like this. And in fact, oftentimes, the way that money is used in our world, it it works opposite of this, right? A complimentary passage in Proverbs 7.12 says this. It says, wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter. But the benefit of wisdom is this that it preserves the life of those who gain it. Wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter. But the benefit of wisdom is this it preserves the life of those who gain it. What's he saying there? He's saying money shelters us, it provides and it promises shelter, but it's not the kind of shelter that's life preserving, that's life giving. I, I, I would, I'm going to give you a little bit of an assignment. I may give you a few assignments along the way here. I'd love for you to spend some time meditating on this. How is money and my relationship with money sheltering me in a bad way? Like we hear that verse on face value and we think it's sheltering me in a good way. But I think what the author of Proverbs is actually getting at is, is that because it doesn't preserve our life, money can shelter us in a bad way. Some of the ways that money can shelter us, it shelters us from our own needs, right? Like I just said, we we desperately need relationships with one another. And oftentimes, my money keeps me from actually needing other people, even though God's told me I desperately need to be in relationship with other people. I oftentimes tease about the fact how many how many houses in one stretch could all own their own lawnmower because. I want to have my own lawnmower. I don't want to have to ask my brother to borrow his lawnmower, even though we only use our lawnmowers, you know, six months out of the year. I don't I don't want to be in a relationship. I want to be self-sufficient, right? It shelters us from our own needs. It distracts us from our other areas of poverty. It's why churches with no socioeconomic diversity, it, it's challenging for us. Because oftentimes it can protect our ignorance to the needs around us because we simply don't see them. Because everybody seems like they're all doing pretty okay, right? There's a whole world around us that's not doing okay. But I'm I'm always hanging out with people in my same class, then I don't really realize that. So it distracts us from other areas of poverty, it distracts us from our own limits, right? If you believe that you made yourself wealthy, because some of you have done really well for yourselves, hallelujah, do you believe that that's a gift from the Lord, like Ecclesiastes says, or do you believe that that's that's something that is simply a product of your own effort and your own intuition and your own strength? Because if you believe that you made yourself wealthy, not the Lord, then you will begin to believe that you're capable and an expert in every area of your life. Have you ever met somebody like that? We were at Rosemary Beach a few weeks ago. People have money there, and we have money because we got to be there, right? So it's double red flag, which means you can't even get in the water. They're, they're literally driving up and down with trucks, with bullhorns like, stay off the beach, get out of the water, like screaming at people to get out of the water. Posting signs and everything. So you know what happens? The truck goes by, gets a little bit of ways. What do you see? Yeah, go on. Go on, kids. Go on. Little kids, ankle deep, knee deep, waist deep. Rip current is crazy strong. Trucks come back, get off the beach, get off the beach. Eventually it ends up with a woman, a couple women and a lifeguard in a pretty heated verbal altercation because she feels like she has the rights to get in the water because they're there on vacation. Now, I judged her for a little while (laughs) in my heart (laughs) because I would never do that, Uh, at least not in that area because I was a lifeguard, and I understand what those guys are. (laughs) Wow, that's deep, isn't it? Seriously. Seriously. I literally sat there and thought, I mean, I knew I was preaching the sermon. I thought, you know what? This is part of what wealth does. That when I'm really successful in one area of my life, I literally believe the rules don't apply to me anymore. I'm wise in every area. So you're an 18-year-old lifeguard. What do you know? Right? I know. We own that house over there on the hill. Right? I'm, I can't drown. I'm rich. You're a fool. And she was acting like a fool. But I do that, right? When I don't really believe that it's the Lord who's given me this, that I, I did it. Wisdom is a shelter, is money is a shelter, but money doesn't preserve the life of an individual. If you've ever watched The Broke 30 for 30 on athletes who have made millions of dollars and lost it all, it's another great example. I was great at football, but I have no idea how to relate to money. And as a result, because I was successful in one area, I thought it'd last forever. And yet Proverbs says, riches are not forever, nor a crown secure for all generations. And that's what we're looking for, right? I'm looking for a secure crown. I'm looking for riches that will endure. So money has power. It's got a grip. Those are some of the internal and external contours. Are you the priority? Is there never enough? Are you never satisfied? Do you have worry and anxiety about it all the time? Are you hoarding? It's good questions to ask, good things to wrestle with the Lord about. So let's talk about wisdom's power in breaking the grip. Okay? Okay? After going on this inner monologue, because that's what he's doing here, that's a lot of what Ecclesiastes is, is he's just kind of, he's musing, right? He's just telling you after tons of meditation, these are my thoughts on this subject. So he's talked about some external things that he sees going on where, you know, the good old boys club, and he's talked about this never satisfied, always losing sleep over it, place in his own heart. And then he starts talking about being naked. After going on this huge monologue reflection, He talks about getting and being naked. What's the relationship like? Why does he go there? Does that seem weird to you? Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they carry in their hands. This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. What do they gain since they toil for the wind? Why does he go there? guys have the dream where you're naked in public have you ever had that dream gosh everybody's looking at me really man we're getting super uncomfortable here right we're talking about money and now we're talking about being naked have you ever had that dream where you wake up and you're somewhere public and you're not appropriately clothed yeah i've i've lived that dream my my bachelor party i wasn't naked don't worry Everybody with young kids, don't freak out right now. But 20 guys took me downtown to dancing in the district in an adult diaper and a cape. (laughs) And put me on stage at the Wild Horse and many other places as I lip synced uh, to many things uh, to humiliate me. So I was not naked, but I was definitely not clothed the way I would like to be downtown. It was vulnerable. I felt helpless, right? I mean, that's what being naked is. It's being in a place of need. It's being in a place of dependence. It's being exposed, right? And that can be really scary. And in fact, I think he's kind of talking about it from that, that kind of scary place. But I, I want us to think about it maybe slightly differently. I think he gets us there here. Because nakedness has been around since the creation of the world, right? you know he says they're naked you come from your mother's womb. It's talking about you being birthed into the world, but when the world was birthed, right? When God spoke the world into existence, that was the state of things for man and woman, naked. They were naked and unashamed, they were naked and unafraid. And yet if you go back and you study the fall, Genesis 3, When sin entered the world and sin entered our bloodstream as a result of it, we're born into that, right? The first response, the first thing we see Adam and Eve doing, what do we see them doing? They're trying to deal with the nakedness. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb. And as everyone comes, so they depart, they take nothing from the toil. Why is he talking about nakedness here? He understands something. And it's this, I'm, I'm, money is one of the primary ways that I try to deal with my nakedness. I'm going to cover up the nakedness, the shame, the insecurity, the fear that I feel. Genesis 3-7, the eyes of both of them were open, they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. It was the first episode of Project Runway, y'all, <laughs> or naked and afraid, right? And how did God respond to this, right? Because remember, he said, Ye from the tree, you die. That's the way that it works. Ye from the tree, you die. You surely will die. And yet, what happened? It didn't die. So, right there at the very beginning of the fall, what do we see? We see grace in the garden, God's grace. And what does he do? He says, Give me that Project Runway fig leaf junk that you're trying to clothe yourself with. And I'm going to make clothes for you. And I'm going to make promises to you. And then I'm going to set out to fulfill those promises to you at cost to me. You need to be clothed by me. You need to depend on me. You were created to be naked and unafraid in my presence. Not self-clothed and anxious in my absence. Think what he's getting at here in talking about naked coming from our mother's womb and what he's getting at in all of his wealth. Because remember, this is what the author of Ecclesiastes said about himself. I owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem. Before me, I amassed silver and gold for myself, the treasure of kings and provinces. This guy was loaded. And he's saying this, in all of my wealth, I'm going to drill into my heart. This is how I'm going to break money's grip on my heart. I'm going to drill into my heart and my mind wisdom and reality, and it's this, I'm naked. All this you see, I'm naked. I came that way, and I'll end that way, and all that I have right now is what the Lord has given me. I'm going to tell myself that truth. I'm going to screw that truth down into my life so hard that that becomes the lenses and the framework by with which I look at my money in my life. That's what wisdom is. That's how wisdom breaks the grip. And remember, wisdom is not just knowledge. Wisdom is a person. Wisdom is Christ and the resources that we have in Christ. Christ in whom, Colossians says, all wisdom and knowledge is held. The treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in him. And so wisdom discovers that joy, that peace, that security, that the nakedness that I feel and the covering that I need, it cannot be accomplished through money. It can't be maintained through money. It can't be secured through money. And oftentimes money distracts me from where those things are most truly found. Luke 12, Jesus says, your life does not exist in the abundance of your possessions. The actual Greek there is your life does not exist in your possessions. Your life isn't in these things. Your existence, your life, your identity, it's deeper than the things that moth and rust can destroy and thieves can break in and steal, like Matthew 6 says. Your life is your crown is a secure crown that lasts for eternity. And I think what he's calling us to here is, is he's saying, get naked. Remember that you're naked. In all of your wealth, remember that you're naked. And that you were made to be naked, naked and unafraid. Naked and unashamed. Well, how do we do that? Oh, man, I need to Hurry an occupied and generous heart. Okay? I'll just say a few things about the end of this passage. Because at the very end, he talks about somebody who's got a bunch of wealth, right? Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift from God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life. Think about that. Imagine not reflecting on the days of your life. Think about the amount of energy you spend thinking about you and I spent thinking about me. God keeps them not reflecting on the days of their life because he keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. He says, this is what I've observed to be good, that God keeps you occupied with gladness of heart, an occupied heart. An occupied heart is one that is living in what we've just talked about, where it understands this is all his, I am his, all that he has is mine, and therefore, because my heart is occupied with that reality, occupied with him, I can be generous. Because I'm operating from a place of a deeper wealth than the wealth of this world. I'm operating from a place the scripture calls having a treasure in heaven, that I'm operating from a place of having spiritual resources through God in Christ. I have an occupied heart. Listen to what he says an occupied heart looks like. A heart that's gifted by God in the moment. He says, when God gives someone wealth and possessions. This is what I've observed to be good. It's appropriate for the person to eat, drink, and find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun, for this is their lot. So he gives them the ability to enjoy it. That's what an occupied heart looks like. I actually have the ability to enjoy the things that the Lord has given me, but enjoyment and obsession are two different things, right? I can enjoy these things, but I don't become obsessed about these things. Another way to say it is I can like these things, but I don't have to love these things. Another thing he says in there is that you can accept your lot. Accepting the place, this is another fruit of an occupied heart. I can enjoy the things that the Lord's given me. I can accept my lot, which is the grace to make peace with where you are and where you're not. It means leaving a life of keeping up with the Joneses, leaving a life of comparison, leaving a life of envy, right? I can accept my lot. I can enjoy what I have. I can be happy in the toil, he says there. I can actually find joy and happiness in the grind, in the work that I'm doing, not in spite of it. And he says things like, you can have rest. The rest of a laborer is sweet and being non self reflective. <laughs> Man, talk about countercultural. He seldom reflects on the days of his life. You can't reflect on the days of your life, or you will reflect on the days of your life if your focus is you. So heart that's gifted by God in the moment, an occupied heart is one that has the ability to enjoy, has the ability to accept their place, has the ability to be happy in the toil, to rest, and to let go of being so self-reflective. And how? Because he has an occupied heart, the true inner spiritual wealth that puts money in its place. He's on the throne. I mean, literally picture it. Like, I've moved in. I occupy this space, Right? You don't love money. You love me now. I'm at the center. And my joy, the gladness of my heart isn't in money. It's in him. Last thing I'll say, because remember Randy started us off a week ago talking about the future, all the fear of the future. It's a heart that's occupied with the true future. That's what an occupied heart is. A heart that's occupied with the person and promises of God. I'll argue this. It's not that we think too much about the future. It's that you don't think far enough into the future. Into the guaranteed future that is yours and mine in Christ Jesus. Because when we do that, we become generous. It says it in 2 Corinthians 8.5. I'll close with this. He's talking about this Macedonian church. It says, in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. So they were suffering bad, but they were super generous. And he says, I testified that they gave as much as they were able, even beyond their ability. So they're going way beyond. How'd they do it? They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. They gave themselves first to the Lord. That's an occupied heart statement. Their heart was occupied by the Lord. And as a result, they were free to give themselves their time, their money, whatever, to others. What's the reason for that? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. So that through his poverty, we might become rich. You can't serve both God and money. He became that we might become rich. When he occupies our hearts, (laughs) we become generous. We become those who give ourselves to him first and then we're free to give to the world around us, okay? Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you, I think, (laughs) for this good uh, but hard word, uh, challenging us, challenging me. I know how much you've challenged me this week on many fronts about the place that money has in my life. I thank you for that. I thank you that uh, you would only do that even if you're calling us, and you probably are, to repentance. You say that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance, Lord, and we, I, put way too much trust, way too much hope, way too much faith security and security in money. Uh, Lord, forgive me for that. Uh, Lord, I pray that uh, you would occupy our hearts uh, as we go from this place in a new and profound way. Lord, that we would be those like that early church uh, that are so captured uh, and in the grip uh, of your grace and your love and of your riches that you emptied yourself of so that we might have. We'd be so captivated by that, Lord, uh, that we would become radically generous people. That the world around us, the Creve Hall, literally our neighbors, the people in our school systems and our work, would literally say the way that you view money and you handle money is so different than anything I've ever seen. What's going on? And we could point to you. Maybe so. Uh, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.